Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord, and he brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is my helper, he is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but the Lord, the name of the Lord, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. He surrounded me on every side. Sorry. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us. With bows in hands, join in the festive procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Thanks, Chris. A magnificent psalm and I hope that as we get our teeth into it today we find deep spiritual encouragement for us because we sure need it, don't we? We live lives in a world that um, doesn't always go the way we would like it to go. We've all enjoyed a good sandwich. I know I, I enjoy a good sandwich. Two slices of bread crammed with our favourite food, uh, sliced in half or quarters, maybe toasted. Well, today, Psalm 118 is like a huge sandwich for us. As Chris has pointed out, it's sandwiched between the shortest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 117, and by far the largest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. And the psalm itself is also sandwiched by the opening and closing verses, 
where it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Verse 1 and verse 29. So that's trying to stress something to us, emphasise something to us. Psalm 118 is like a rich meditation on the goodness of God. So first, let's pray and ask that God would help us to really digest this sandwich and take to heart this message of God's goodness. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have gone to the trouble of recording your words in a book, the Bible. Please help us to understand what we read. Speak to us today from this psalm about your son, about your goodness to us in the land of the living. Strengthen our understanding and help us to really believe the truth of what we hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The idea of God's goodness is throughout the Bible. After God created the world, we read, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Romans, Paul reminds us, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who have been called according to his purpose. The New Testament book of James describes God as being unchanging like the, the heavenly lights. Day after day, year after year, century after century, you look up into the sky and you can see the Southern Cross. You can see the pattern of the stars. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is good to the core of his being, and he does not change in his goodness. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So the first four verses are like an introduction to the psalm. And then we're going to look at it in three sections. The introduction here is quite specific. We see that it's all God's people who are called to trust in his goodness and praise him for his goodness. From the greatest to the least, we're all called to meditate, pray and praise God for the same thing. God's love endures forever. Verse 2 says, Israel, that's the entire nation of natural-born Jews. Verse 3 says, the house of Aaron, that's the priests, the ministers of the Lord. Verse 4, those who fear the Lord, which is probably the Gentiles who've converted to Judaism and live in the land. So thanking and praising God for his goodness and love isn't just for pastors or elders and missionaries. It's for all of God's people. Parents and children, singles and young adults, old and young. All of us 
are to think about, meditate on, and praise God for his goodness and loving kindness. But that can be a challenge, can't it, to do that and think about God and his goodness. We're not sure exactly who wrote Psalm 118 or when it was written, but there are hints it might have been written during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. That's when Israel celebrated that rebuilding of the wall after 52 days. The walls have been just rubble and God's people had no security and the governor, Nehemiah, came along and he marshaled the people together and in 52 days, despite opposition from their enemies, they had to work with a sword in one hand and the trowel in the other hand, day and night in shifts to get the wall rebuilt And at the end, did they celebrate God? They'd been opposed, they'd been ridiculed, they'd been threatened with murder and all kinds of things, and they took refuge in God from their enemies. And it's quite possible this psalm was written as a celebration of that time. We don't know, though, because we're not explicitly told, but it's a reasonable assumption. What we do know for sure about this psalm is it's the most quoted psalm in the Bible. All gospel writers, book of Acts, um, Hebrews, 1 Peter, all quote directly from this psalm. And then Romans and Ephesians and other parts allude to it. So it's, it's a pretty important psalm. So let's look at it in three parts. Verses 5 to 14 verses 15 to 21, and then 22 to 29. So the first section, verses 5 to 14. These invite us to trust God's goodness in every crisis. It's not difficult to see crises in these verses. Look at what these verses mention, verses 5 to 14. Verse 5, when hard-pressed. Verse 6, tempted to fear. Verse 7, in need of help. Verses 8 and 9, looking for refuge. Verses 10 to 12, surrounded by problems or enemies. Verse 13, push so hard you're about to fall. Verse 14, weak, defenceless, in need of saving. Man, these describe real trials, real difficulties, crises. The psalmist was much like us. Things don't always go smoothly, do they, in life. But in each situation, we're reminded where our help comes from. Where does our help come from? Verses 6 and 7, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me, he is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. So like the psalmist, is, he's cottoned on to the idea, God is good and his love endures forever, and then he milks it for all it's worth in a variety of circumstances in life. That's exactly what we should do. But... It's a challenge to do that. It's a learned thing. Think about the implications if God is not good. 
Just think about that. Then he couldn't be trusted, could he? How can you trust someone who's not good? How can you trust someone who's not good, especially in a crisis? They might let you down. He'd be disqualified from being the king and judge of the world because to be a good king and a fair judge, he has to be good. He has to give good rulings. He has to do good to his people. You have to know where you stand. There has to be consistency. He has to be, his love needs to endure forever. And the whole Christian faith would be undermined as fraudulent if God is not good like he says he is. So, of course, he's good. Otherwise, he, why would we worship a non-good God? A God you can't trust. How much needless worry and tears we have when we don't trust in the goodness of God. It's interesting, Hebrews 13.6 quotes verse 6. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And it's saying, it's applying that verse to every believer. It's saying, you can trust God. He's the only real place you can go for help. I'm not going to be afraid. Whatever's going on around me, what can mortals do to me? Because God's on my side and he's good. But bridging that gap between knowing that and trusting God and doing that is a process of learning. Let me give you an analogy. In mid-primary school, our family moved to Darwin in the Northern Territory. Not long after we arrived, I was uh, walking down the street. I wasn't familiar with the layout of the suburb. And I knew there were some shops nearby. Mum had sent me down to the shops. That was quite an acceptable thing to do in the mid-1960s. You could send your child down to the shops. No responsible parent would tend to do that today. And I saw an Aboriginal man in the street, and I'd never spoken to an Aboriginal man. And I thought, man, this guy's got to be a local. He's got to know where the shops are. So, all right, I'll ask him. So I went up to the Aboriginal man, excuse me, sir, uh, could you tell me where the shops are? And he just pointed and he said, over there, boy. Oh, okay, wasn't quite what I expected. And then I said, uh, how far are they? He said, oh, a little bit long way, a little bit short way. I scratched my head. I, I'd never come across pidgin English before. I'd never come across this concept of a little bit long way, a little bit short way. How far is that? So I knew straight away there's no point asking him how long a little bit long way, a little bit short way is. So I just thanked him and I kept on walking, eventually found the shops a few blocks away. Now, our, our experience of God can be a bit like that. We might expect one thing but find something else completely different, unexpected, when it comes to understanding God and his goodness. 
He will so often take us beyond our own concepts and ways of thinking that have shaped us through watching TV and social media and our interaction in human relationships. For instance, when we think about goodness, we think about law-abiding, kind and helpful actions. We speak of people who do the right thing by others as good people. If you leave your phone behind, they won't steal it. They'll tap you on the shoulder and say, excuse me, you left your phone on the seat. Uh, and we'll say to them, oh, thank you. That's so good of you. Or we'll say to a, a compliant or obedient child, that's a good boy. There's a good girl. Wow, that's great. But we'll have big problems if we just try and transport that concept of goodness over and plonk it onto God. We'll inevitably think of him as not allowing anyone to suffer. Why would a good God let us leave our phone behind? Why, why would he let our Optus account get hacked? Why would he allow us to contract cancer? Why, 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 why would he let our, our mother uh, get killed in a car accident? He's good. Why would he do that? I wouldn't do that if I was good. And so if we just take our human view of goodness, our common view, and try and plonk it onto God, we'll have problems. If we make ourselves or human logic and experience the arbiter of what is good, then we'll completely miss the mark when it comes to knowing the goodness of God. Look carefully at the language of the next section of this psalm, verses 15 through to 21. Being in a right relationship with God does not mean you won't experience harm or evil. But it is the basis for overcoming harm and evil and praising God for it. Verse 15 says, Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. This probably refers to returning from battle with the spoils of victory and then having a celebration party, a victory party back in your tents at base camp. But think about it. Have all your friends returned from war? Sometimes there's casualties. Often there's casualties in war. Will everybody be there celebrating the victory? Not necessarily. We read um, in verses 15 and 16, the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. So there must have been some mighty problems. To proclaim what the Lord has done in verse 17 is in the context of life and death and being chastened severely and not being given over to death. Look at the language. The Lord has chastened me severely. Now you've just said he is good. But he, he has not given me over to death but you might have experienced some real difficult times. Think of Job. He knew God was good. Verse 17, I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Sometimes we go through illness that takes us right up to the point of death. 
Sometimes we, we have a car accident and we get horribly injured. Things can happen, and yet God is still good. Do you see that we've got to adjust our view of goodness based not on just our experience, but on what God declares in his word? And when we cotton on to the fact that God is good and he makes all things work together for good, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear evil. We can praise God and thank him for his goodness as we go through the difficulties of life. There's, we need a robust idea, a biblical picture of God's goodness not some unrealistic, idealistic or romantic notion. There's a great picture of this in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy is confronted by the idea that Aslan was a lion. She'd heard about this Aslan, she'd assumed he was a human. And remember C.S. Lewis created Aslan as a godlike figure in Narnia. So listen to what Lucy asks. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Now that is a more robust idea of goodness, much more like what we encounter in scripture. If we hold a safe, man-centred idea of God's goodness and be like trying to fit all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together when you're missing pieces. But if we have the kind of faith shown in verses 19 to 21, look what it says. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the righteous through which the righteous may enter. I will give, th give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. If God becomes our salvation, we must have needed saving. We must have been in a desperate situation. Things mustn't have been going well. When you go through a deep trial and you cry out, how long, O Lord, and relief comes, thank God for it. But know this, you did not succeed by your own power or ingenuity, but by the goodness of God. And even with lesser things, remember that God has delivered you. He is the one who's carried you through. He is the only good God. So last year when I tumbled off the bushwalking track and wound up 10 to 15 metres down the side of the track, I was so thankful that I didn't hit, a, hit my head on a tree or a log or break my neck or skull. There will almost certainly be a silver lining in every dark cloud you face in life. So learn to search for it. When you find it, thank God for it. Now verses 22 to 29 give us the final crucial pieces of the jigsaw. So the first section, verses 5 through, through to 15, talked about 
crises that we encounter. And then verses 15 through to 22 talked about the fact that we've got to thank God for his deliverance. He's up to it. So what's the final piece of the jigsaw? And this is what really is the telling thing about this psalm. These verses show us that we see God's goodness supremely in Jesus Christ. We've all experienced the pain of rejection at some point in our lives. It's horrible, isn't it? Being picked on, teased, bullied, left out. Consider verse 22 in that light. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Ancient builders selected their stones with great care because they wanted the right stone for the right place. Some stones would be cast aside because they were unfit for purpose. They couldn't be fitted in anywhere and they were unsuitable. That's what happened to Christ. The leaders of the Jews saw him as unsuitable to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God, but he didn't fit their idea, their concept of what a Messiah would be. All four Gospels quote this verse as applying to Christ. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Jesus himself took these words on his own lips and spoke them to the religious leaders. The ultimate rejection is to be put to death. Jesus was spat upon, flogged and crucified. That's rejection. He was considered unfit to be the Messiah, the Saviour. But God knew he was exactly the right fit to be the Messiah. In Acts 4, after healing a lame beggar at the temple and being reprimanded by the Jewish authorities for doing that, Peter quoted Psalm 118.22. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now look at verses 23 and 24. The Lord has done this. It is this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. It's marvellous in our eyes. By God's grace, Peter realised that Psalm 118 described what happened to Christ, the Son of God. Man intended to harm him and reject him, But behind it all, God did this marvellous thing and worked salvation through his son. The crowds who greeted Jesus with palm branches when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey shouted the words of verse 26 from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And look at verse 27. 
with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That's exactly what they did. They got palm branches. We celebrated on Palm Sunday. In the Old Testament, the blood of sacrificed animals was applied to the horns of the altar. It says, with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That's up right into the temple precincts of Jerusalem where the sacrifices were made. And that's exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus. He rode into Jerusalem and there he became a sacrifice. He was crucified, rejected despised, the suffering servant. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, the greatest news the world will ever know came into the world. Christ rejected and crucified by man but accepted by God and raised from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. In light of the cross of Christ, Peter understood that the holy blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on Calvary was what God used to atone for his sins and for, for the sins of anyone who will turn to him, that they would be washed clean by the blood of Christ. Through Psalm 118, God opened Peter's eyes to see that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. God set up his death and resurrection to be a throne of grace where sinful men, women and children, both Jews and Gentiles, find mercy and grace to help with all their needs, great and small. To receive the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in his name is to receive the very goodness of God that justifies you in his sight, that washes you clean and declares you acceptable in God's sight. Do you see this? It's so clear in this psalm. Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. Psalm 118 was Martin Luther's favourite psalm. With all the difficulties and trials he went through in the Reformation, threatened with death, persecution, etc., he fled to this psalm. And his favourite verse in the psalm was verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Experience taught Luther that it was hopeless to go to councils and appeal to princes. He wrote letters and all sorts of things and he got nowhere. The one who would be his helper and who had helped him was God. And so he wrote Psalm 117, Psalm 118 and verse 17 on the wall of his castle. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. He is taking truth from a psalm about the goodness of God, the very centre, this sandwich, this rich meditation on the goodness of God, and he's holding it before his eyes, putting it on the wall so that he will not forget and he will remember whatever he goes through. God is good. 
Do we see this? Do we get this? You may be thinking, okay, um, how can I be sure about these things? I hear what you're saying. Why should I believe what you're telling me? I say, believe them because the Lord who cannot lie and does not change has revealed them for your salvation. They are written for us. Like in the book of Hebrews, quoting verse 6, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do for me? It's written for us. I say believe them because the God who is good and whose love endures forever has sealed them with his blood. The blood of an eternal covenant that has been ratified when he received his son in heaven. I say believe them because the son of the living God declared from the cross with his dying breath, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is finished. Either this is true or it is rubbish, like the words of a madman. Why was this story of Jesus Christ written down in the Gospels? Why has it been published all around the world and in so many different languages? John's Gospel tells us why. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The God who is good and who cannot lie has spoken. So hear this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Take heart in the goodness of God. Through the cross, God made an evil thing work together for good for all who love him and are called according to his purposes. You can count on that. You can stake your life on that. God is good to the core of his being and he will not lie to you. It is worth asking yourself, is my understanding of God and his goodness shaped by the message of the cross? Or is it being more shaped by the logic of this world? Do I really have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for my sins and rose again, that he's coming again to be the judge of the world. He is good. Do I really believe that? If you do, then rely on this good God in every situation, large or small. If you fall off the track, if you contract cancer, if your loved one dies, God is good his love endures forever. Take a leaf out of Job's book. Trust him. Even when Job lost all of his ten children and all of his flocks and herds, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. 
The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's trusting in the goodness of God. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then be inspired by this psalm to draw near to God because he is good. And trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Take this message of the goodness of God to heart and give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So we can trust God's goodness in every crisis, thanking for his goodness in every victory, and behold his goodness supremely in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, help us to realise that every good and perfect gift comes to us from you, the Father of the heavenly lights. You do not change like shifting shadows. Help us to understand this good news we have just heard. Help us to grasp the implications for our daily lives. Convince us that you give new birth through faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was buried and rose again, rejected by men, but accepted by you, that we might be set free from our sins. We ask you to increase our spiritual appetite. Help us to hunger and thirst for you and your divine goodness. Help us to digest this message of your goodness shown so clearly in the cross of Christ. Give us the faith of this psalm writer. I will give you thanks, for you answered me and have become my salvation. Open the ears of our heart to you and to your son Jesus Christ, that we may go out from here as your people, trusting, rejoicing in your strength to do good to others in turn. Plant today's message so deeply into our hearts that we will not forget it. Help us know that you are faithful to do this because by ourselves we cannot turn over a new leaf or convert ourselves. We need you, Lord, and you are good. So hear us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.